and I'm excited about the word that we're looking at today. I really mean that. This passage of scripture, and I invite you now to turn again to 1 Corinthians 15. This is our second message on this particular chapter. I think it's the second one. Um, there's so much in this. This is a rich passage. It shows the wisdom of God, and it also shows that it's only uh, the God of the Bible who is the true God, because he can tell the beginning from the end. And what we're going to be looking at today is some of the most tremendous truths we have in Scripture. The implications are tremendous. Paul, as I mentioned before, Paul is correcting many of the errors in the church, not only in practice, but also in doctrine. In fact, if you remember, when we started this, when we started this expositional study of 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, we looked at Paul in chapter 2 talking about the gospel. He said the only thing he wanted to know when he came to the Corinthian church was being preached was what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. He emphasized the fact that there was a stigma in the gospel, and that stigma was the blood of Jesus Christ. And he was talking about the wisdom that is contained in that message. He had to correct them concerning their view of the gospel message, of the what it meant, what the gospel really was. He had to correct them and show them that the gospel is not only to be preached in word, but to be lived out in their life. And that's what he was doing throughout the book. He came to chapter 13 and showed that the thing that was missing in their life was a demonstration of love. And love was the basis for God sending his son, as, as the children just sh uh, sang, uh, shed the, his, the blood of Jesus Christ for our sin. It was love that motivated him to do that. And Paul was showing that what was missing in the Corinthian church and their behavior was love. There was pride, there was arrogance, there was selfishness. All of those things were going on because of the absence of love, where you look out for the benefit of the other person rather than yourself. But now when he comes to chapter 15, he's dealing not so much with practice, but for the basis of practice. And the basis of good practice is always good doctrine. And he is now dealing with the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And to show how this teaching, if you really understand it, impacts the way you live. And this is what he's doing in this particular chapter. Now, this underlines something that is true of the church today. And that is that not too many people are interested in doctrine or teaching today. They're only interested in experience, what makes them feel good. Most people come out today to a church service not asking what will I learn today, but how can I feel good? What will make me feel good? And Paul is showing here that what we need is a good understanding of the basics of the Christian faith. And as I mentioned last time, he's demonstrating in this book that the resurrection of Christ is the bedrock, is the bedrock doctrine of Jesus Christ. And in our last message, we looked at those first 19 verses. And Paul emphasized one overall truth in those 19 verses. And this truth was this. In order to have a complete understanding of our eternal hope, we must not only believe in Christ's death for our sins, but we must also believe in his bodily resurrection. And the emphasis is on his bodily resurrection. It's not a spiritual resurrection he's talking about, but a bodily resurrection. And then he gives us six consequences in this chapter, or these verses, six consequences to the Christian faith if Jesus Christ is not bodily risen from the grave. He said six certain things, definite things would come about. And look at verse 14. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. He's talking about his preaching and the preaching of the apostles to the Corinthians church. The word mean without profit, useless, without value. He's saying the first thing is you must understand, if it is true, as some are claiming in Corinth, that Christ did not rise bodily from the grave, then our preaching was foolishness. And he's saying that because, remember, he said that the part of the gospel of Jesus Christ was that he was raised again from the dead. 
And if that was not true, then they were preaching foolishness. Then he says, your faith is also vain. Why? Because your faith would be in a message that is useless. You see, that's why faith alone is not the important thing. It is what we have faith in that's the important thing. You see? And so no matter how a person may believe in a message, if the message isn't accurate, if it isn't sound, you can still be lost. You can have the strongest faith and you can in everything in that message, but if it isn't accurate, if it isn't true, it's a vain, Paul is saying. Then the third thing he says, moreover, verse 15, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. In other words, our character now comes into question because we're coming with a message and we say this message saves, but it doesn't. We said that Jesus was raised from the dead, but he wasn't if what you say is true. Now, if that is true that he didn't rise, maybe he didn't die for your sins. See, that's the implication here. In other words, he said the character of the preacher of the gospel rests upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 16, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is what? Worthless. Notice that. Your faith is worthless. There's such a thing as a worthless faith. It's the message that is important. It's the one that you place your faith in that is vital. And then number four, he said, another consequence of Christ not being raised is you are still in your sins. Now, notice that. That's if Christ is going to be not raised. He didn't say if Christ didn't die. He says if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, you are still in your sins. The message is wrong if it doesn't include the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. You could proclaim his death all you like, but if he wasn't raised, that death is not sufficient to save you. That's the point he's making here. All right? Not only that, he says, number five, verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And this is, this apparently is one of the concerns of the Corinthian church. They wanted to know what happened to their loved ones who died. If there was no resurrection, what's going to happen to them? He says, well, if there's no resurrection, they're done. They're finished. That's it. You see, they have perished. That's finished. They're annihilated if you want. Now, this is important for us to understand here. If there was no resurrection of Jesus Christ, no believer would be raised either. See, that's the point. Our resurrection depends upon his own. And then 6, he said, verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And context, that simply means this. If the believer is trusting in a message that is not true, especially when it comes to the resurrection, then we have really been duped. We have been fooled. You see? And he says we are of most men to be pitied. Not only that, we are hopeless because we're believing in a hopeless message. And Paul says these are the consequences if Christ was not raised from the dead. So the conclusion of this whole passage was that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to the Christian faith. You cannot preach a true gospel without preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the point. Without preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right? Now Paul then goes on to verse 20, and this is our passage for today. He goes on to explain the impact of Christ's resurrection upon the entire history of the human race. Not only for the Christian church, but as far as God's plan for the entire human race is concerned. This is a tremendous passage of scripture that we're looking at this morning. Paul goes on to state a very important truth in this passage. And he does it in two ways. First, he comes up with a historical fact. Christ has been raised from the dead. Notice the passage begins with the preposition, but. This is a strong contrast to what he said in verse 19. He's saying, if Christ was not raised, then this. But he says, that's not true. That's the import or the impact of the preposition. That's not true. Here are the facts. Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen. This is a historical fact. Now notice also, Christ has been raised from the dead. As you read the context, you will see what he's actually saying is, Christ has been raised from among the dead. He's not only talking about Christ in relation to the resurrection of the dead. He's talking about Christ as one being raised from among the dead. 
And he's going to specify the dead from whom he was raised from among. In other words, he was the only one who was raised in this fashion. All right? He was the only one who was raised from among certain specific people who are dead. Notice the next phrase. This is a theological truth that he presents now. And we only know this by divine revelation. Without the word of God, we would not know this. Perhaps history would have told us that Christ was raised because so many witnesses we have for that. It's a historically established fact. But we wouldn't know this, that he is the first fruits of those who sleep. This is divine revelation. This is God speaking to us concerning the implication of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The implication is that Jesus was raised from among those who were asleep. That's why it's called the first fruit. First fruit here means that he is the first of those just like him. Because the first fruit represents all that is to come. Nothing different but the same. So the first fruits means that Jesus is the first of those just like him. So this tells us something of the nature of those who are asleep. They are a special group of people, who, as we shall see as we go through the passage, who makes up the first resurrection. They are a special group of people. Paul then goes on to explain and reveal the significance of this group of which Jesus is the first fruits. Notice what he says, verse 21. For since by a man, that man is Adam, came death. Now this is a tremendous truth here that he's going to be teaching. Sometimes we all look at the significance of it. From a man came death. The man is Adam. He talks about this in detail in Romans chapter 5. And this is what he says in verse 12. Just as through one man... Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sinned. This is a tremendous passage of scripture here. We must understand this, if you can understand what Paul goes on to talk about Jesus Christ. Paul is underlining the fact that Adam was the head of a race that was condemned to death because of his one act of transgression. And so there was a certain race that was condemned, and that race was those who were in Adam. He is what, that is, Adam is what the theologians call the federal head of the human race. In other words, his actions and the consequences thereof were attributed to this race as though they did it themselves. In other words, when they looked at Adam, and God looks at Adam, he says, what you did, the entire race did. That's the point here. That's why we could actually transfer uh, translate Romans 5.12 or paraphrase it like this. Death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam or all sinned when Adam sinned is the idea. Paul then goes on to reveal a major theological truth. Notice, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. He, this is a comparison, it's not a contrast. It is a comparison here. And a man... He is identifying again the fact that Jesus Christ was a man. He was a human being. He was raised as a man. He was raised bodily. That's what our resurrection rests upon as well. Paul is drawing a vital parallel between Adam as the federal head of a fallen race because of his one act of transgression with Jesus, who because of his his one righteous act, the death on the cross, He became the federal head of a new race. You see, Adam introduced or brought into being a certain race, condemned because of his sin. Now Paul is saying, Jesus Christ also brought into being another race. But this race is different from the race who's in Adam. That's the point here. Here's how he explains it in Romans chapter 5, verse 15. The free gift, notice it's a gift is not like the transgression. This is a contrast now, not a comparison. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the one who had the judgment arose from one transgressing, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift rose from many transgressions resulting in justification. In other words, Adam sinned, right? And that sin 
cause death to pass upon all men through that one act. But now, when he comes to talk about the free gift arising from many transgressions, he's talking about the fact that Jesus took the penalty for the sin of all upon himself. And that's why justification came about, because Jesus Christ took upon himself the transgressions of all, not only the transgressions of one. For for if by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, death reigned through the one, that's Adam, much more those who receive the abundance of grace, notice that, receive the abundance of grace. Now remember, those who were in Adam, they didn't, they, they didn't have to receive that condemnation. It was imposed upon them. But now when it comes to the free gift with justification and righteousness, you, it, was a, it was a gift grace and had to be received. Much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life. Notice the contrast between death and life. One reigning in death, the other reigning through life. And that is through the one, Jesus Christ. So we have here a tremendous picture then of something that Jesus Christ has brought about. And that is a new race of people, a new class of people that's different from those who were in Adam. And it all came about because they placed faith in this Jesus Christ. And when they placed faith in Christ, they became in Christ. And being in Christ makes you a new race, a race that does not have the condemnation of God upon it anymore. Now, when you come back to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, Paul applies this truth. Notice what he says. For as in Adam all die. Notice that now. In Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now, many people mistranslate this verse, and so that means that everybody is already saved then. Because it says, all will be made alive in Christ. But you have to read this text very carefully. The best way to read it is like this. For as all in Adam die, so all in Christ will be made alive. Now, we don't have to do anything to be in Adam. We were born in Adam. But we have to do something to become in Christ. And that's to receive the free gift that comes through Jesus Christ. So the important word or phrases here is in Adam and in Christ. And that is true here today. This congregation is divided into two groups, two races if you want, and it's not black and white. It's whether you're in Adam or you are in Christ. You have two races and they're going to two different destinies. That's what Paul is talking about here. And we must realize that. These phrases then describe two distinct and different races of people with two different destinies. And that's Paul's emphasis in this passage on resurrection. There will be two different resurrections of two different kinds of people at different times with different consequences. That's what Paul is emphasizing here. This is a fantastically rich theological passage here. Notice now, but each in his own order. Notice the congregation again. And I'm sorry, the preposition again. Another contrast. But each in his own order. It's not going to happen all at once. I was brought up in a church that said that uh, there will only be one resurrection. The righteous and the unrighteous will be judged together. One general resurrection. You won't know whether you're going to heaven or hell until you get there, is the idea. And that's kind of late to find out what's happening. <laughs> but that was the belief. That's why none of them had assurance of salvation. Because they believe in one general resurrection and the scales will be done and if you, if you find certain favor and so on, you'll be saved. If not, you go to hell. But that's not what Paul is teaching here. Each in his own order. Now the word order here is important. Most people, when they read this passage, have the idea of next in sequence. Now, Paul does talk about sequence here, but he's not talking about sequence when he uses the word order. Now, you've heard of the word like the order of the ladies of uh, the king or the queen, right? Different orders like that. You're talking about a certain group of people. Like, remember when you, when you talked about, um, you, you talked about Joe, John the Baptist's father. He was in a certain order that came to offer the sacrifices at a certain time. In other words, he was in a group that did the work at a certain time. There was another group who did the same work, but they did it at some other time. So the order here refers to a group of people. It's like a regiment, you understand? So what he actually saying here, but each in his own regiment, each in his own group is what he's talking about here. 
each in his own right, rank. So Paul is saying here that all those in Christ will be made alive. In other words, they'll be in or with their own group. So when he says Christ the first fruits, he means that Christ is the first of his kind, or first of those are, who are of his rank or of his group, or of his race if you want. That's what he's talking about. Now this took place 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ, the first fruit, um, uh, rose from the dead. In other words, the first resurrection began when Jesus Christ was raised. We do not have to wait for the end times to begin. The end times began 2,000 years ago with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We in the process, we are next in line. And we could be called at any time. See the point? We could be called at any time. But the call would only go out to his kind, his race. All right? That's the point. This is real segregation here. And when we talk about this truth many times, uh, people like to talk about, you, you know, um, we're not tolerant and so on. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now listen, you want to talk about intolerance, that's it. Jesus Christ or God the Father cannot tolerate any other Savior than Jesus Christ. There's only one way to God, and that's through his Son, Jesus Christ. We cannot in any way compromise that. No matter how people call us any kind of being unkind or ungracious or whatever it is, the word is this, there's one race of people that is going to heaven, and that's the race who trusts Jesus Christ as personal Savior. So when he says, after those who are Christ at his coming, we could actually paraphrase it this way. After that, those who are Christ's kind at his coming. He's speaking about the rapture of the living saints and the resurrection of those who are asleep. Those are the ones who are like him. It's his kind of people because of their placing their faith in him as Savior. Now, this is a point that is often missed. The living saints will not be resurrected at the rapture. They will be transformed. Now, why won't they be resurrected? Because they ain't dead. It's only the dead who's going to be resurrected. The death only has to do with the resurrection. Now, those who have died will be resurrected. However, we will all be changed. We will all be transformed to be like Christ as far as his body is concerned. We'll be looking at that at the later verses next time. So, the sleeping saints will be resurrected because they die. Paul calls this a mystery. Now, in Scripture, mystery has to do with a truth that was hidden, or not revealed anyway, and it could only be understood by special revelation. A mystery is a truth that is understood or being revealed by divine revelation. Paul calls this a mystery. It isn't that we don't know what's going to happen. We didn't know before, but we know it now because it has been revealed to the apostles and prophets, Paul says in Ephesians 3. So he calls this a mystery, a truth that was once hidden, but now revealed by the Spirit of God. Notice what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is the passage we normally like to read, especially around funeral times. Let's read it together. It's on the screen. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. You see, there was some at Corinth who didn't have this comfort. And so this word was revealed directly to Paul, he says here, so that he could give comfort to the people at Corinth concerning those who have died. And so again, in this passage, not Paul in Thessalonians rather, 
In this passage, Paul again is emphasizing the fact that the dead in Christ will be resurrected. The those who are alive when Christ comes to resurrect the dead saints will be transformed. They will be changed. We call this the rapture. The Greek phrase is the hapatso, the snatching away. A lot of people like to say that this word rapture is not in the Bible. That's not true. It depends on which Bible you're reading. One of the first translations we had was the Latin Vulgate. And if you read the Latin Vulgate, you get this word rapture, rapturo. That's where we get it from, in fact. But in the Latin Vulgate, it is called the rapture. You understand what I'm saying? Right. Now we come to verse 24. And this is a tremendous verse of scripture. It's a panoramic view of the climax of human history. This is where history is headed. This is why I say here we have a picture, if you want, or a demonstration of the wisdom of God and the fact that God has to be God because he alone knows what's going to happen from beginning to end. Notice what he says. Then comes the end. Um, then comes the end. Most people say the end of the world. No, not the end of the world, but the end of the resurrections. Paul is talking about the sequence of the resurrections. First Jesus, then us, that's what we're waiting for. Then he says, come the end. Come the end of the resurrections is what he's talking about here. This is going to take, the end is going to be 1,000 years after the resurrection of the saints, that we call the rapture. Because in between of that, we have the millennium, and then we have <clears throat> the resurrection, <clears throat> excuse, of the dead, which we'll talk about in a moment. The final resurrection is that of the dead. That is, those who have not placed faith in Jesus Christ. Those who don't know Christ. In other words, the final resurrection will have to do with the race who are still in Adam and not in Christ. The final judgment has to do, great white throne judgment has to do with the race who still remains in Adam at that, up to that point. All right? The great white throne judgment is what he's talking about when he says, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. Now, when is this? That'll happen when Jesus has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For Jesus must reign. He's referring to the reign of Jesus in the millennial kingdom, especially here. Until he has put all his, that's the father's, all the father's enemies under his feet. See, Paul is alluding to the fact here that Jesus Christ came to earth as God's champion to regain, if you want, his right to Godship. And I say that now because remember, the Bible tells us that Satan tried to usurp the throne of, the throne of God. Isn't that right? And that's what this whole battle is on. Well, Jesus is reigning as a mediator, if you want, representing his father. And when he has done everything to put things back in order, He's going to give the kingdom, if you want, back over to the Father. That's what Paul is talking here. And he said that'll happen when he put all the Father's enemies under his feet. He, remember now, the Bible tells us that even during the millennium, Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. And he's going to be doing that until he subdues all of his enemies. Paul will later tell us in this passage that the last enemy to be abolished is what? Is death. Notice now, it goes on, for he, that is the Father, has put all things in subjected subjection under his feet, including death. Now, why is death the last enemy? Why is it the last enemy? Paul will go on in the later verses to tell us that the sting of the law is what? The law, right? How does it go? The law is... In other words, he has to finally do away with the consequences of death. All right? And the only thing that could do away the consequences of death is resurrection. Resurrection and death cannot coexist. One has to go. Right? So what is going to defeat death? Resurrection. And the resurrection comes by who? Jesus Christ. You see the point? 
So when he has finally had the last resurrection, including the dead, then death will be overcome. And the consequences of sin will be done away with. And then final enemy will be all uh, defeated. Paul will explain in the other verses that we look at next time that the last enemy to be defeated is death. And what defeats death, of course, will be the final resurrection of the dead. Remember this, friends. Resurrection is the conqueror of death, the final enemy of the triune God. And Jesus is the one who's going to be responsible for bringing us about. Now notice he goes on to explain. Now when he talks about everything being put under subjection, he says, all things are put in subjection. It is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. That's the Father. Now this is a passage that people get all mixed up because of the pronouns here. The best way to study this is to try to follow the antecedents from the beginning and to the end. If you look at the hymn and go backwards to who it referred to, in other words, go to the end of the passage and look at the hymn and go backwards, or start at the beginning of it, look at the hymn and go forward, you will find out who's been, talk, who's been spoken about here. So what it's simply saying here is that there's coming a point when Jesus, who is now up to that point, will be serving as a mediator um, for God, he will give that up. And Jesus Christ will once, I'm sorry, the Father will once again be all in all. He will be God over all. Here's how John describes this final climatic event in Revelation 11, verse 15. This is what happens. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. That means now that the, all rebellion against the Godship of God has been done away with. And God, again, is to be recognized as the only true and living God. This will happen after death has been conquered through resurrection. So, let's review then this amazing panorama of events that Paul outlines in this chapter. Now you have a diagram there, and that diagram actually outlines this chapter for us. Let's read it and go through it. There are three significant time markers in the passage. First, Jesus, the first fruits, right? Then, those who are Christ, that's the second time marker. Thirdly, then comes the end. Those are the three time markers or indicators in that passage. Now, the Bible reveals, as I said before, that there will be more than one resurrection and more than one judgment. There's not going to be one general resurrection and one general judgment. There are going to be more resurrections and more judgments associated with that. Now, how many resurrections, how many judgments? That's what that passage deals with here. And that's what we're going to be looking at very briefly. John 5 says this, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now, some still read this passage and say there's only one judgment. The, the righteous and the, condemn, and the unrighteous are going to all be raised at the same time. But the, this passage is not teaching that. It's teaching that there will be a resurrection of those who are committed, those who did the good deeds and, and those who have committed evil deeds. One is called the resurrection of life. One is called the resurrection of judgment. All right? Now, as I said, it could be argued on the first casual reading of the passage that the two resurrections referred to here will occur at the same time, so there will only be one resurrection in effect. However, the scriptures establishes the fact that the resurrection of the righteous will occur in stages, as we've just seen, and I'm going to go over it again, 
And that is what Paul is outlining in here. Let's go back to our passage in 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul, by the way, confirmed this concept of the resurrection when he was standing before Felix. And this is what he said. There shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. But some misinterpreters at times they think there's only be one resurrection. The righteous and the wicked will be raised at one time. But Paul is actually making a distinction rather than saying it is one. So when we come to 1 Corinthians 15 then, we have the sequence of resurrections. There is, first of all, the first resurrection, the resurrection of the just. We read the passage. Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. So the first resurrection is the resurrection of the just. And there's some stages in that. The stages in the first resurrection. As we saw, first of all, it was Jesus Christ. That happened over 2,000 years ago. Now, the next phase of this is going to be the resurrection of the just, the church. Christ, the first truth, after those who are Christ at his coming. But I've explained that already. But I just want to reemphasize that there will be phases of the first resurrection. Now, we are waiting now for this second stage, when Christ will come to snatch us away to be with him and to raise those who have died in him. We are next in line to be transformed if we are alive when Christ comes. Not resurrected, but transformed. Our body will be transformed the same time those who are resurrected will be. So we could say that rapture has two phases. First Thessalonians 4.15 again. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So you see there are two phases already. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise, what? First. Is the first is the second. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up to gather with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. So there are two aspects to the rapture. The resurrection of the dead, and the snatching away of the living. Now, the image here of the first fruit is um, very important to understand what is happening here. It is used in these verses to show how God has planned out everything for us in an orderly fashion. And he's done it in a way that we could understand. In Bible times, the harvest was conducted in three stages. It began with the gathering of the first, fruit, fr first fruits, which were offered as a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God. And of course, Jesus Christ was certainly a sacrifice for us. Then we had the general harvest. This is when the, the harvesters went in, and they would harvest the rest of the crop. However, they were not to harvest everything. They were told to leave some behind for the poor. Isn't that right? Leviticus 19 explains this. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, nor shall you glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather the fallen fruit from your vineyard. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Using this imagery, if you want, Paul presents the resurrection of Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection of the righteous. The gathering of the church of the rapture is the general harvest and, the, uh, and called the resurrection of the righteous. The next one will be the resurrection of the damned, of the condemned. But there's the third phase in the resurrection of the righteous. Because not only will the church have a part in the first resurrection, but also will the tribulation martyrs in Roman, Revelation 20 verse 4, and also the Old Testament saints. 
they are also a part of the first resurrection. They will come after the church, though. This is what it says in Revelation 20. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image. This is the next group of people now. This is the next race. The next race here are those who did worship the beast and his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So we know that the saints that were martyred during the tribulation will be raised before the millennium. So they enter into the millennium to reign with Christ. See that? Daniel 12 talks about the other ones. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting content. Again, you see the division, two groups of people, two orders of people. So the first resurrection, the resurrection of, of the righteous, occurs in three stages, beginning with Christ, continuing with the church of the rapture, and culminating with the tribulation martyrs and the Old Testament saints at the return of Jesus Christ. That's how the resurrection of the righteous will take, take on. But then there will be the last resurrection. We shouldn't even call it the second resurrection because after this, there's no more resurrection. That's why it's best to call it the last resurrection rather than the second resurrection. This is the resurrection of the unjust. Again, this is what Paul calls in Acts 24, 15, the resurrection of the wicked. Now, this resurrection will take place all at one time at the end of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. This is at the time of the great white throne judgment, the judgment of the wicked, as described for us in Revelation 20. Every person, whoever failed to trust Christ as Savior by faith, all those who failed to do that will be resurrected at this time. All of the unsaved of all times will be raised at once. They will not be like the first resurrection. But all of the unjust, all of the unsaved will be raised at once. That's the great right throne judgment. So regardless of where they might have lived or where they might have died, all of the unrighteous will be raised at the great white throne judgment. This resurrection will include the unjust who died during the tribulation and the millennium as well. There are going to be people who are unsaved during the millennium. There will be death. Now, the righteous will live for a long time. You can see at the moment. But some will die. But this resurrection of the unjust will include those who die in the tribulation as well as those who die in the millennium. Notice what it says in Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand, thousand years. Notice now, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. Now the rest of the dead meant those who had not received Christ as Savior. Then it says, this is the first resurrection. Now sometimes people say, see there, the unsaved are included in this, but that's not true. This is the first resurrection that has to do with the first four verses that he's talking about there. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. You see how clear and precise it is here. Once you're in the race that is in Christ, death has no power over you anymore. Why? Because resurrection life now in Christ has won the battle. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. That's what I call the first phrase of the first resurrection. Now, careful, you must understand this. There will be no need for another resurrection of the righteous at the end of the millennium. Why? Because all those born during that time who accept Jesus as Savior will live to the end of the Lord's reign. Isaiah says this, As the lifetime of a tree so shall be the days of my people, says the Lord. He's talking to people who will be alive during the millennium. So it appears that the righteous will live throughout the thousand years. So there will be no need for resurrection. Now, here's a general principle taught in all of this. 
It seems that lifespans during the millennium will be returned to what they were before the fall, before the flood. People will live as they did before sin entered the world. That means there'll be no more death. In other words, we could say, now take this carefully, I might have to reword this later on. When you live in a resurrected life, you cannot die. Why? Because resurrection means what? Freedom from death, right? But here's another principle. All the resurrection will be followed by judgment. But the judgment of the righteous is a different judgment from the judgment of the wicked. The judgment of the righteous is not unto condemnation, but is for rewards. It's the idea of determining what reward you get, not what consequences you're going to get, whether you're going to heaven or hell. But it's different with those who stand before the great white throne judgment. Actually, to be very simplistic, the great white throne judgment is simply to validate the righteousness and justice of God in allowing uh, what happened to happen. In other words, those who are going to hell are going to actually be able to say before God that what you're doing is right. It is righteous. It is just. So here's a divine principle then here. Solomon puts it well, I think, when he says, when he finished writing his book, fear God, keep his commandments. Why? For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. That is what we are looking forward to. So the big question to you is today, what race are you in? Are you either in the race that is in Christ, or are you still in the race that is in Adam? If you are in the race that is in Adam, remember now, Christ is the last Adam. Christ is the head of his, there will be no more race like this one that Christ has. Christ is not the second Adam, there's not going to be a third. There's only the first Adam, that is Adam, uh, our forefather. He headed up a race that was condemned. Then there is the last Adam because he represents the entire redeemed race because of the grace and the righteousness of God. So you're either in one of those races or the other. If you are in Christ, the people, the order that belongs to Christ, then you are free from judgment that leads to condemnation. And that's a glorious truth to know, isn't it? But if you're not in Christ and in that race, then you are still in Adam and you are destined for a judgment that leads to final condemnation. But as Paul mentions in Romans 5, it's a gift of grace. God extends his love and his grace to you right now, right now this morning. You could come out of being in Adam and be in Christ. And you could then be in the waiting line to take part in the rapture, the second phase of the, of the resurrection of the righteous. And our prayer today is that you might do that right there where you are. Acknowledge that Jesus Christ is your Savior. He died for you. He didn't only die. He died for you. Acknowledge that you cannot save yourself. Place your faith and only faith alone in Christ alone as your Savior. Because he not only died, but he was raised again. He had overcome death. And when you accept him, you become into his resurrection life, and you too will escape everlasting death. That's a powerful word of prayer. Take a few moments now. I want you to really examine yourself today. Are you in Christ or in Adam? If there's never been a point in your life where you acknowledge that you were a sinner and acknowledge that Christ died in your place, bearing your penalty, and that God raised him from the dead to acknowledge the fact that he had accepted Christ's death on your behalf, then you need to do that right now, to be in Christ, to escape the judgment under condemnation. Will you do that right now where you are? You could say a prayer something like this. God, I acknowledge that I am a sinner. I acknowledge that the consequences of my sin 
is separation from you, death. But I thank you this morning that Jesus died in my place. He took the consequences, the penalty for my sin. And so right now, this morning, I place my faith in him so I could become in him as well. Thank you for raising him from the dead to show that you accepted his his death as the basis for my salvation. You do that right now, my friends, and you could come into Christ. You could step out of being in Adam to be in Christ. Will you do it right now? Now, if any of you who have done that and would like to speak with me or Pastor Arnold or any of the other pastors, please be sure to do that. In fact, let me ask you right now, is anyone here right now who has done it or would like to do some help in coming to place faith in Christ? Anyone? You just raise your hand and put it right back down, please. Anybody at all? If you've never yet received Jesus Christ as your Savior, would you like to do so today? Remember, we are here to help in any way we can. And our prayer is that you might come out of Adam and get into Christ. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that it might find good soil so that much fruit might result. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.